designed to denigrate outlaws and became something much worse. Whether it's killing children or dressing up a dead wolf in the mayor's clothing, here is the horrible truth about the people who were accused of being werewolves in Renaissance-era Europe. People who can transform into animals have appeared in legends for almost as long as we've had the ability to write those legends down. But the modern idea of a person who turns into a violent, bloodthirsty beast is comparatively recent. The word werewolf didn't enter the English language until around a thousand years ago, when it appeared in King Canute's ecclesiastical ordinances. Werewolf literally means man-wolf, but the word was originally meant to be a disparaging name for an outlaw. Sort of how you might say, that guy is a wet blanket, even though you don't actually think that he's a saturated piece of fabric. Fortunately, we modern people haven't ever gone from calling someone a wet blanket to actually believing that some people can transform themselves into soggy bed coverings. But at some point a few hundred years ago, people did start to think that man-wolves could become literal man-wolves, so the name stuck. Medieval werewolf stories weren't like modern werewolf stories, or even like the stories that led to the werewolf trials that happened in later years. Early European stories didn't portray werewolves as violent, flesh-eating creatures. Instead, they were sympathetic, tragic characters forced to live out their lives under a terrible curse, sort of like Beast in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Maybe angry at the world or eternally sad, but not generally evil. Werewolves from those older stories didn't lose their humanity when they became wolves. In fact, they were usually capable of rational thought and behaved pretty much exactly like humans. One of them even rode a horse, which probably didn't go over so well with the horse. But that tells you something about the faculties of the medieval werewolf. When medieval werewolves did behave like wolves, they had human motivations. They desired things like wanting revenge on whoever it was that cursed them. Even the way that werewolves transformed was different. In modern stories, the wolf exists inside the person, and then the person kind of turns inside out to reveal the wolf, with a lot of hair sprouting and stretching and joints moving in the wrong direction. In ancient werewolf tales, the wolf was kind of like a skin that covered the person, so even the transformation wasn't super violent. Then the 1500s happened, which was around the same time that witch trials were becoming a thing, and shortly after Spanish Inquisition began. So people were already pretty used to the idea of burning random people at the stake for supposedly being in the league with the devil. Where wolfery kind of just became one more facet of witchcraft. And in 1521, we have the first record of a human being accused of turning into a wolf. From that point on, the concept of a werewolf changes forever. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Pierre Burgot was a French shepherd who told the court he'd been living as a man-wolf for 19 years. Burgot and co-wolf Michel Verdun both claimed to have been slathered with some magical transformative stuff that made them grow hair and fangs. After their transformation, they went on to hunt and kill humans, including two children and an adult woman. It's hard to say if these crimes really happened, because courts of that era were famous for making stuff up and believing whatever weird stories the townspeople wanted to tell about people they didn't like. The story does say that Verdun was captured in wolf form while in the actual act of attacking a hapless traveler, which seems to imply that there were real wolf attacks happening at the time. On the other hand, the fact that the two men confessed to the horrors does kind of suggest that they were killers who wanted to have some excuse for their awful behavior, no matter how unlikely. 
Clearly, when you have a werewolf problem, you need a werewolf judge. Enter Henry Boguet, who presided over St. Claude's criminal justice system for 15 years during the late 1500s and early 1600s. In that time, Boguet busied himself with making sure that werewolves were brought to justice. History has a tendency to exaggerate reality, and there were some historians who claimed Boguet sent more than 600 people to their deaths, but Boguet himself rather modestly claimed the number was more like 80. If you look at the actual records, though, he probably sentenced just under 30 people to death, and he even let a few people avoid the executioner. Who says the legal system in the 1600s wasn't fair? However, Boguet wasn't especially discriminating when it came to who he chose to sentence to death. In one of the most horrible stories from his time as a werewolf judge, he had a child executed because she liked to run around on all fours pretending to be a wolf. The story told in court was that she attacked a couple of kids, but her conviction probably had more to do with the fact that she was dirty and poor than whether or not she was a danger to anyone. In this next story, two men were out in the woods when they happened upon a pair of wolves eating the corpse of a teenage boy. After being spotted, the wolves ran off and the two men gave chase. They didn't find the creatures, but they did find Jacques Roulet, who had long hair and a beard and was half-naked, hiding in bushes, and also had blood all over his hands. Roulet was poor and was known around town as a beggar. He told the court that he was able to turn himself into a wolf with the help of a magic salve and that he'd killed more than just the one boy in the woods. For some reason, the court eventually decided that Roulet was more crazy than supernatural, which is weird, because he was clearly not a werewolf, but if he really did have blood on his hands, well, he probably wasn't harmless either. Nevertheless, his death sentence was commuted to two years in a madhouse, which makes him a pretty lucky guy given the circumstances. France was kind of the epicenter of werewolf hysteria, but other nations certainly weren't immune. In 1595, the Netherlands tried and convicted 62-year-old Folk Dirks and his daughter, who was just 17. The Dirks' accusers were Folk's own sons, ages 14 and 13, who claimed that the whole family had made a pact with the devil. They claimed that the devil had given them a magic belt that changed them into wolves. Included in the accusations were two younger siblings, ages 8 and 11. No human beings were harmed by the alleged werewolves, but the Dirk family confessed to killing livestock and also occasionally transforming into cats and attending weird cat dances. Folk and his daughter both, of course, confessed under torture, and the girl named several other werewolves, werecats, and devil worshippers. Folk Dirk was burned at the stake. The Dirk boys were all spared, but they were whipped and forced to watch while their sister also burned to death. Being accused of werewolfery was usually a death sentence, but not always. In the late 1600s, an old man named Thies told the court that he was a werewolf, but not to worry. He wasn't the sort of werewolf we like to see shirtless on a movie poster, but the sort of werewolf who works for the good guys. Thies called himself a hound of God and said he would occasionally turn into a wolf, but only so he could travel down to hell to do battle with demons and witches and other unsavories. By doing so, he was protecting the people up above and the flocks they depended on. Perhaps the most shocking part of this story is that the judges actually bought it, or were at the very least convinced that Thies didn't deserve to be executed for his crimes. Instead, they let him off with just ten lashes. If only all the doomed werewolves of the past had been clever enough to come up with the same defense. In most cases, courts didn't need an actual body to convict someone of a capital crime. 
They just needed to believe that the accused was under the influence of satanic magic. When an 18-year-old boy named Hans was brought before an Estonian court in 1641, he told the judge that two years earlier, he'd been bitten by a man dressed in black clothes and had been a werewolf ever since. As is so often the case in these stories, the judge asked him if he physically became a wolf or if it was just a spiritual transformation. The boy said it was a complete physical transformation, but he insisted he hadn't made any pact with the devil. That didn't really seem to matter to the judge. The court was convinced that the man who bit Hans must have been Satan, which meant that Hans was under the influence of satanic magic, whether he'd been a willing participant or not. That was all the information the judge needed to arrive at a sentence of death, even though Hans had no human victims. You didn't need a human body to convict someone of werewolfery, and you didn't need an actual living human werewolf either. In this story, the perpetrator was a literal wolf, but the villagers were still pretty sure it was a werewolf. The town of Ansbach in Bavaria once had a mayor who was widely hated by pretty much everyone in town. Then he died, and the townspeople were decidedly overjoyed at his demise. But not long after that, a wolf started terrorizing the town. It wasn't just eating livestock, it was killing kids and full-grown women too, and the deaths were pretty gruesome. The wolf left behind partially eaten corpses that had been ripped apart, so the villagers arrived at a totally logical conclusion. The wolf was actually the reanimated form of their dead mayor, come back to torment the town from beyond the grave. The townspeople killed the wolf, so that was a relief, but then they dressed it up in a suit and put a wig and beard on it so it looked like their deceased mayor. Then they gave it to a museum, you know, as proof that werewolves existed, because obviously no normal wolf would ever dress itself up in a suit, a wig, and a fake beard. Today we understand that some people just don't possess empathy. We even have a clinical name for it, psychopathy. While we're still shocked and horrified by the things these people do, we also understand that psychopaths are still human. Hundreds of years ago, though, people didn't have an explanation for serial killers, and it wasn't hard to get from behaves like an animal to actually is an animal. That's why people like Peter Stube ended up dying for werewolfery in particular rather than for just being a despicable person. The crimes of Peter Stube were almost certainly real. He terrorized Bedburg, Germany, and was responsible for the deaths of two pregnant women, at least 13 children, and also a bunch of cows. He mutilated his victims and sometimes partially ate them. After he was apprehended, he told inquisitors that he turned into a wolf with the help of a magic belt. And you won't be surprised to hear that the belt was given to him by the devil, because of course it was. Stoops' confession was given while he was bound to the rack, so that does cast some doubt on whether or not he was the actual killer though it does seem likely that the crimes are the act of a deranged person and not an animal. It's not hard to feel bad for so-called werewolves, who were really just people guilty of nothing except wanting to make the torture stop. But the case of Peter Stube wasn't the only time the townspeople probably got it right. There was a tailor in Chalon, France, who lured kids into his shop, tortured them, and then slew them. And to make matters worse, he ate them and stuffed their bones into barrels. It's really not a huge leap to go from there to werewolf, even if you're not a French townsperson living at the end of the 16th century. The tailor was undone by his own greed. As more and more children went missing, the townspeople started to suspect him. Then when the barrels of bones were discovered, it was pretty clear who the perpetrator was. The tailor confessed and was burned at the stake. Afterwards, the court destroyed all the records of the trial and expunged the guy's name from history, which sort of begs the question of how we even know this story. Still, 
This is one of the few cases of an accused werewolf probably getting what he deserved. Check out one of our newest videos right here. History, and it took place 100 years before the witch trials in Salem. In Europe, during the 1500s, on top of having to deal with the Black Plague, men and a few women were convicted of transforming into werewolves and mutilating and eating adults and children. There is one case in Germany that stands out more than the others because of its brutality in the eventual gruesome execution of the alleged werewolf, Peter Stone. For months in Bedburg, Germany, something was slaughtering the goats and sheep at night and leaving the carnage for local farmers to wake up to. Their bodies were torn apart and their insides were now on the outside. Wolves were the obvious predator because they were prevalent in the area. But soon, local children started to disappear from their homes, and women would disappear as they walked from one place to another. Some of their bodies were also found mutilated along the road, if they were found at all. The victims had been strangled, disemboweled, bludgeoned, torn apart, and eaten. Some were even concerned that it was something more sinister, like a werewolf. Something that could walk amongst the people in the town, unsuspected when in human form. The townspeople were understandably disgusted and terrified, so they formed patrols with mastiff-type dogs to hunt whoever or whatever was committing these horrible acts. But who exactly was Peter Stump, and what did he even have to do with werewolves? Peter Stump was a 50-year-old widower with two children, a boy and a girl. He was respected in his community because he was pleasant and was somewhat wealthy. There isn't much more known about Stump, but what is known, if true, is from a 16-page pamphlet by George Boers called The Damnable Life and Death of Stump Peter. It describes Stump's life, the crimes that he allegedly committed, his trial, and his execution. It also includes statements from neighbors and witnesses. The pamphlet was published in London in 1590 and later rediscovered in 1920 by English author Augustus Montague. Summers. Summers reprinted the pamphlet, and he added a woodcut in his book, The Werewolf. He also wrote The History of Witchcraft and Demonology in 1926, as well as books on vampires and werewolves. He also translated the Malleus Maleficarum from Latin into English. The Malleus Maleficarum was a book that taught witch hunters how to identify, interrogate, and convict witches. It was used during the Salem witch trial. In the 1500s, Germany was at the center of the witch trials in Europe, and this pamphlet was published during that time. It's claimed that Stump practiced black magic, and when he was 12, he made a pact with the devil, and the devil gave him a belt that allowed him to transform into a wolf with a mouth great and wide, with sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body, mighty paws, and eyes that flashed like fire in the night. Whenever he put on this belt, he would turn into a werewolf. Once he took the belt off, it was as if he had never been changed. Another version of the story says that he didn't literally transform into a wolf, but that he would wear the skin of a wolf while looking for his next victim. The name Stump may have been given as a reference to the fact that his left hand had been cut off, leaving behind a stump. In Germanic mythology, which also influenced the laws of the time, it was believed that if a werewolf's left forepaw was cut off, the same injury would appear on the man. 
Once, as a local farmer was attempting to fight off a wolf, he cut off its left paw with a sword. When the farmer later ran into Peter Stump, he noticed that Stump was also missing his left hand. Now, this was enough to convince him that Stump and the wolf were one and the same, so a posse was formed. Stump was allegedly found while he was in wolf form and chased by the men and their large dogs. He went on to remove the wolfskin belt that the devil had given him, and he reverted back to human form. Once his identity was confirmed, he was arrested. He said that he tossed the belt into the woods, but the belt was never found. Once he was under the threat of torture, he began his truly disturbing confession. He confessed to murdering 16 people. He admitted to ripping out the fetuses of pregnant women and eating their hearts and strangling, beating, and tearing apart children. He claimed that he devoured some of his victims entirely so they would never be found. He even lured his own son into the woods and beat his head against a rock and later beat his brains. He admitted to stalking pretty girls in town and following them to more remote areas where he could do whatever evil things he wanted. He also admitted to sleeping with his teenage daughter Sybil as well as a succubus. A succubus is a female demon that's believed to be sexual in nature, appearing to men in dreams or in the physical world to seduce them, steal their energy, and in some cases, kill them. But despite his wild confessions, there was some actual proof against him. One girl said that she was able to escape from a werewolf because the starched collar of her Sunday dress protected her neck from his claws. Another person said they saw Stump closely watching some children as they were playing and milking cows in the field right before they disappeared. Another man described a time in the woods when Stump lured him away from the woman that he was with by calling his name only to quickly go back and snatch the woman away. On October the 28th, 1589, the 50-year-old farmer was found guilty of cannibalism, incest, witchcraft, and werewolfery, and he was sentenced to death. This was during a time when the punishments were sometimes just as gruesome as the crimes that were committed. In Bedford, Germany, on October 31st, 1589, a large crowd gathered to witness his execution. Stump suffered pain that was indescribable during his execution, which is considered one of the most brutal on record, and this is why. First, as he was strapped to a breaking wheel, also called a Catherine wheel, his daughter's skin was stripped off and she was strangled. His flesh was also methodically ripped from his body with red-hot pincers that resembled pliers. First, the skin was removed from his torso, then his arms, and then his legs. His limbs were then broken and bashed repeatedly as he was strapped to the wheel with the blunt end of an axe so that he could not return from the grave. He was also decapitated. His head was attached to a wooden pole that was carved into the likeness of a wolf and later displayed as a warning to all sorcerers and witches, which unlawfully follow their own imagination to the utter ruin and destruction of their souls eternally. His female partner, Catherine, was also flayed alive and strangled as he screamed in pain. 
Sybil and Catherine were burned alive at the stake, and all three bodies were tossed onto the pyre and burned completely as a way to show what happened to anyone that chose to consort with a werewolf. Some historians believe it's possible that Stump was a murderer and that the werewolf legends may have been a way to explain the presence of serial killers in the 1500s. Many believe, especially those present at his execution, that he was an insatiable bloodsucker, psychologically damaged, and suffering from the rare mental disorder of what is now known as clinical lycanthropy. Supposedly, Stump actually claimed to have this condition. He believed that his pleasure in the shedding of blood and the feeling of fresh, warm blood pouring down his throat was due to the condition before it had a name. Clinical lycanthropy is when a person has the delusion that they can transform into, has transformed into, or is an animal. And often that animal is a wolf. Some believe that Stump was innocent and that his confession was incited by the horrific torture he endured. It's been suggested that he was never involved in incest and that it was simply town gossip that was spread by a romantic rival. But who really knows because we don't know if he really said any of those things because we don't have any of the records from the actual trial. Maybe Stump who was a Protestant was a victim of werewolf hysteria and the religious rivalry that was going on between the Catholics and the Protestants. His trial may have been a way to encourage any remaining Protestant to convert to Catholicism. Think about it. What Protestant would have wanted to be associated with an incestuous werewolf that made a pact with the devil and slept with succubi? Surely his trial and his execution would lead people to the Catholic Church. Customs and beliefs are naturally replaced by new ideologies. However, in some historical periods, the changes were violent and intolerant. For example, the unfortunate witch hunt period, mainly in Europe and North America. The witch hunt occurred predominantly during the modern age, from the 15th century to the end of the 18th century. It was an era shaped by huge political, economic, and social transformations, such as the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, maritime expansion, and the consolidation of monarchical absolutism. During the Renaissance period, classical thought was rediscovered and there was a huge advance in art, science, and literature. Religious tensions in Europe intensified with the Protestant Reformation, which divided Western Christendom between Catholics and Protestants. The Catholic Church played an important role in promoting the witch hunt as it considered witchcraft a form of heresy and a threat to authority. Religious leaders preached that witches worshipped the devil, performing pagan rituals and resorting to supernatural powers to harm people. Often, accusations of witchcraft were used to justify the persecution and murder of people seen as different or threatening to society. For example, women who lived alone or who had knowledge of medicinal herbs were often accused of witchcraft. Many people believed that the devil was a real entity in our world, with human followers known as witches and wizards. Another popular belief claimed that witches made a pact with the devil in exchange for supernatural powers. According to this belief, witches worshipped the devil and carried out his wishes in exchange for their powers. The trial procedures during the witch hunt were exceedingly cruel and unfair. The accused were often subjected to physical and psychological torture to force them to confess to crimes they had not committed. 
Mostly, the condemned were burned alive, and some were beheaded. The victims were tied to a ladder, which was then pushed onto a burning pyre. As a final mercy, the authorities tied gunpowder bags around the witches' necks to hasten their deaths in the flames. Also, the trials were utterly biased. The judges, often members of the local church or nobility, had already decided on the sentence before the trial started. Prosecutions were based on the rumor and gossip. Witnesses often lied or were coerced into testifying against the accused. Many secular leaders believed that witch persecution was needed to maintain social order and protect the state. During the witch hunt period, people had scant scientific knowledge about the world. This fear of the unknown made them look for culprits for natural events, such as epidemics or destroyed crops. Witches were often seen as the cause of these problems. Many people of this time had financial and psychological hardships. Persecuting witches was a way to escape from their reality, creating a sense of religious duty in their lives. Inquisitors and witch hunters played a key role in spreading the collective hysteria that led to the persecution and execution of thousands of people during the witch hunt. Inquisitors were agents of the Catholic Church, charged with investigating and prosecuting crimes against the faith. They had extraordinary authority to interrogate and try suspects of heresy and witchcraft, including the use of torture to obtain confessions. Witch hunters identified and persecuted alleged witches. They were usually people with no legal or theological training, but who took advantage of the financial reward offered by the courts that convicted witches. Inquisitors and witch hunters instilled a sense of fear and suspicion in towns and villages, encouraging the population to report neighbors and relatives suspected of witchcraft. In 1428, the first systematic European witch hunt began in Valais, Switzerland. It lasted eight years and killed 367 people. To be convicted, a person had to have at least three neighbors publicly declare that they were a witch. Most of the accused in the Valais witch trials were peasant men. These individuals were subjected to torture, where confessions about encounters with the devil were extracted. Others confessed to having the power to kill neighbors with magic, or to transform into werewolves. In some parts of Europe, such as Germany, most of the accused were women. In Iceland, many accused of witchcraft were men. A papal bull published in 1484 by Pope Innocent VIII, where the pontiff denounced witches, was seized upon by the German inquisitor Heinrich Kramer, who wrote a manual on identifying and treating witches in 1486. One of the most famous literary works about the witch hunt was the book The Hammer of Witches, written by Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Springer in 1486. It was a manual on how to identify and punish witches, widely used by inquisitors during the witch hunt. The most famous victim to be burned at the stake for witchcraft and heresy was Joan of Arc, but Joan was not murdered during the witch hunt period. She was more of a victim of politics than of religion. Witchcraft was simply a convenient way that the French nobles used to get rid of Joan. She was considered a blasphemer against God, and was burned at the stake in 1431 in Rhone, France. It is said that she died from smoke inhalation before the flames devoured her. The most well-known and widespread case today was the trial of the Salem Witches, a group of women accused of witchcraft in the late 17th century in the coastal town of Salem, Massachusetts, United States. The Salem Witch Trials and Executions took place in 1692, considered one of the darkest episodes in American history. The Salem events began when two young girls, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, displayed bizarre behavior and unexplained convulsions. The two girls were examined by doctors, who identified no medical cause for the symptoms. Other young girls experienced similar behaviors, and Salem residents began to suspect witchcraft. 
the Salem witch trials took place under collective hysteria and paranoia. The accused were subjected to unfair trials, and confessions were wrung out under torture. Nineteen women and men were convicted and hanged for witchcraft. Others died in prison or were forced to flee. The Salem Witches is a powerful example of how fear and superstition can lead to extreme wrongdoing. Over time, witch persecution became a lucrative industry. Courts and witch hunters sought out more and more accused to try and punish, but they lost steam as society became more secular and people more critical of superstitions and supernatural beliefs. But the witch hunt is still considered one of the darkest episodes in human history. It serves to remind us how paranoia and intolerance can fuel widespread injustice and the violation of human rights. Air burn in cauldron bubble, cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. Shakespeare's weird sisters predicted the rise of Macbeth and then predicted his downfall. He drew them from source material, but they also might have been inspired by King James, who was obsessed with witches and hunting them. And in that King James was not alone. Hunting witches was also quite popular on the continent as well. The European witch trials of the early modern period are history that deserve to be remembered. In 1589, King James VI of Scotland married Princess Anne of Denmark via proxy, with James's representative standing in during the ceremony. Anne then sailed for Scotland, but encountered storms on the seas and was forced to seek refuge in Norway. After calling for prayers and fasting, James went to Norway, where he formally married her at the Oslo Palace. They celebrated <coughs> in Europe and went back to Scotland in 1590. James, however, remained haunted by Anne's problems at sea and placed the blame on Scottish witches. He didn't create this out of nowhere. The Admiral of the Danish fleet escorting Anne blamed the wife of an official in Copenhagen, whom he had insulted. In Scotland, several nobles were eventually implicated. And in Denmark, witchcraft trials were held. During the Danish trials, one woman, Anna Coldings, gave the name of five other women, one of whom was the official's wife that was suspected by the admiral. The five others confessed that they summoned the storms by sorcery. Two women were burned at the stake. Back in Scotland, James heard of the Danish trials and set up his own inquiry. The episode became known as the North Berwick Witch Trials. In the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance, ritual folk magic and medicine was practiced throughout Europe, mostly by women in the villages. Because medicine did not yet exist as a profession, people sought out the local wise woman for healing. In Britain, they were referred to as cunning folk, who provided a variety of services to their communities. First, they provided help against malevolent witchcraft, which had been practiced against the person seeking their assistance. They would use charms, rituals, and herbs to relieve the person. Second, they employed a variety of methods to find lost property and criminals. Third, they were sought after to provide healing through potions and herbs, but also rituals and prayers. Historian Owen Davies notes that cunning folk were seen as helpful and useful, while witches were seen as evil. In 1200, the Catholic Church adopted the doctrine that witches obtained supernatural powers through collaboration with demons and devils. Cunning folks were sometimes not caught up in the witchcraft accusations because the locals did not see them as evil, but witch hunters wanted to prosecute them as well as witches. During the North Berwick witch hunts, more than a hundred suspected witches were arrested. Many were tortured by James's inquisitors. Under torture, they confessed having met with the devil at night in St. Andrew's Kirk on the Green in North Berwick and used their powers to attempt to sink the king's ship. James believed one of the accused because she told him something he had only told his wife in private. She must have attained this knowledge supernaturally, he reasoned, 
ignoring the most plausible explanation that she had learned it from a chambermaid who either overheard it or was told it by Anne. Among the accused were Gailish Duncan and Agnes Sampson. Duncan was a healer and Sampson was a midwife. Gailish's boss was the deputy bailiff to the Kingdom of Scotland, but when she became a healer in a short period of time, community members suspected her of witchcraft. After being tortured, Duncan and Sampson named accomplices and confessed. Agnes Thompson, one of their accomplices, confessed to King James himself that she used witchcraft to attempt to kill him, thus making her guilty of attempted regicide as well as witchcraft. The North Berwick witches were burned at the stake. In 1597, James published Demonology, his treatise on black magic. James changed evidence laws to make his trials easier, such as allowing the testimony of children, which had previously been banned. James did not give up on his obsession with the dark arts, even as he became King of England in 1603 upon the death of Queen Elizabeth I. In 1563, Queen Elizabeth I's Parliament had criminalized witchcraft with an act against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcrafts. Following the passage of the act, indictments for homicide caused by witchcraft began to appear in the historical record. More than one in five indictments for murder in the period following the passage of the act were attributed to witchcraft and only 5% of those accused of murder by witchcraft were men. But the 1563 Act only demanded the death penalty for practicing witchcraft if physical harm was caused. Lesser crimes of witchcraft were punishable by imprisonment. The Act passed in 1604 after James's ascension, an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits, expanded the definition to bring the death penalty to anyone who invoked evil spirits or communed with familiar spirits. In 1612, the Pendle witches were tried. Nine people were hung for witchcraft on the testimony of a nine-year-old girl. In all, ten people were executed as a result of the Pendle witch trials. An account of the trials called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster was published by Thomas Potts, clerk of the court. In 1629, Richard Bernard wrote a manual on witch hunting. A guide to grand jurymen advises those participating in trials how to evaluate evidence and avoid being deceived by false accusations. His manual was meant to reform witchcraft laws by seeking direct evidence. Witch hysteria did not die with King James. His son, King Charles I, reformed the law to require material proof of witchcraft. Witch hunters thus began trying to gather the needed evidence. During the English Civil War, Matthew Hopkins's witch hunting career flourished. He began hunting witches in 1644, and he was responsible, along with his associates, for more people being hanged for witchcraft in England than had been in the previous 100 years. He proclaimed himself Witchfinder General. According to Hopkins' book, The Discovery of Witches, he began his career after overhearing women discuss meeting with the devil. Joined by John Stern, Hopkins tried to prove accused witches made a contract with the devil, which is what made them guilty of heresy and reduced their legal rights. They often use sleep deprivation to extract confessions. They also use various tests, such as cutting the arm of the accused, and if they did not bleed, they were a witch. Another was the swimming test, where if a person floated, they were guilty of witchcraft because the water was rejecting them because they rejected their Christian baptism. They also looked for the devil's mark, a third nipple, or a mole. His book outlined such methods and was recommended in law books. In 1648, they were adopted by the colonists in Connecticut while trying Alice Young and Margaret Jones. Jones's execution was the first in the witch hunt in the colonies that lasted from 1643 to 1663. Hopkins' methods were utilized in the Salem witch trials years later in 1692 to 1693. During that episode, 19 were executed for witchcraft and 150 imprisoned.
the testimony of children, first allowed by James, was also vital to the trials. The British witch trials were not an aberration in Europe. They were part of a widespread witch hysteria occurring throughout the continent. In 1486, the Malus Maleficaria by Heinrich Kramer advocated extermination of witches amid a detailed legal and theological theory. It endorsed torture and deception to get confessions. It also developed a gender-based theory, stating that women were more susceptible to demonic temptations and more carnal than men. Some historians note that most of the victims were outspoken women who defied social conventions of the time. Others theorize that since Europe was transitioning from feudalism to capitalism, women's economic competition threatened men of the time. The peak of European witch trials occurred between 1560 and 1630. Between 1580 to 1630, an estimated 50,000 Europeans were burned at the stake for the crime of witchcraft. About 80% of them were women. Between 1560 and 1707, as many as 4,000 witches may have been killed in Scotland alone. The numbers are only estimates because the records at the time are not exact and sometimes missing. In general, there was a regional divide in witch hunting. In continental Europe, there were more trials in France and the Holy Roman Empire than in Italy and Spain. In the British Isles, Ireland had few trials compared to Scotland and England. The epicenter of European witch hysteria was the German-speaking heartland, Switzerland, and northern European German-speaking states. Germany had the most witch trials, over a thousand between 1626 and 1631 alone. At least 368, and possibly as many as a thousand people, were executed as a result of the 1581 to 1593 witch trials in Trier, Germany, arguably the biggest mass execution in European history during peacetime. Witch trials also resulted in the execution of hundreds in Fulg, Würzburg, and Bomborg. Germany was responsible for 42% of all the European witch trials, followed by Switzerland and France. Protestants were more wary of witchcraft than Catholics. Catholicism had traditionally viewed charges of witchcraft with skepticism, as the mere belief in the existence of supernatural phenomena was considered heretical. Old customs, such as hunting witches, were viewed as being as dangerous to Catholic orthodoxy as witchcraft. Even confessions were viewed with skepticism, since the word of witches was not to be trusted. Still, the Spanish Inquisition investigated some 7,000 people for purported witchcraft in the 17th century, and at least 12 women were burned at the stake. The pursuit of witches grew as the Reformation in Germany and England picked up. Witch trials were more frequent in Germany and Switzerland, where conflicts between Protestants and Catholics were most heated. Some historians place the blame for these prosecutions on natural and economic disasters. It was easy to blame witches for crop failures, climate changes, economic collapse, and disease. Others also note that an increase in unmarried women, displacement of nuns closing convents in the Reformation, and decline in economic opportunity may have driven persecution of women as witches. The Enlightenment eventually brought an end to the witch hysteria and prosecutions that inspired the weird women in Shakespeare's Macbeth. In 1735, English witchcraft law was amended to make it against the law to accuse someone else of having supernatural powers or of using witchcraft. And that finally put an end to the witch hysteria that had been so prevalent in Europe in the 15th and 16th century. Most Americans are familiar with the Salem witch trials, which occurred in the American colonies in the 1690s, but the European witch trials and witch hunts of the early modern period are relatively more forgotten. But those set the stage for what happened here in America. Child testimony, the methods for identifying witches, methods for extracting testimony, those are all processes which have been defined in Europe 90 years before the Salem trials. And of course, all of that gave rise to the more modern term, witch hunt.
hope you enjoyed this episode of the History Guy. Short snippets of forgotten history between 10 and 15 minutes long. Attention to the history of witchcraft. Societies around the world have long believed in magic, using it for both help and harm. For our purposes, we can understand magic as a set of traditions and rituals that helped to explain the unexplainable and gave a feeling of control or influence in a chaotic world. Though individuals had long been punished or chastised for practicing harmful magic, European society did not begin hunting for witches until about the 15th century. It was during this period that the cumulative concept of a witch emerged. This was a person believed to practice harmful magic, worship the devil, and participate in an insidious secret conspiracy. Witches were envisioned as evil or desperate people who sold their soul to Satan and in return gained magical powers they would use to wage war against Christian society. This was a serious criminal offense that was punishable by death. The emergence of this frightening figure was due to a combination of factors. For example, this was in part the result of an increased effort by the church to crack down on the practice of magic. There was also growing concern about the devil and his powers in the centuries leading up to this period. Over time, various groups were targeted as allegedly part of a hidden conspiracy of devil worshippers, a trend that is important for our subject today. Eventually, religious leaders began writing about and discussing the frightening possibility that individuals were actually capable of selling their souls to the devil and in return gaining supernatural powers. In short, this is when witch hunts began. Witch trials took place between the 15th century and the 18th centuries, during what is known as the early modern period. This was a time of increasing fear and tension across Europe. Outbreaks of the Black Plague, devastating wars, religious tensions brought on by the Protestant Reformation and Catholic Counter-Reformation, and changes in the weather were just a few of the factors which made everyday life tough and uncertain. Witchcraft accusations frequently followed an act of random misfortune and could quickly erupt into a full-blown witchcraft panic if left unchecked by local authorities. While anybody could be accused of witchcraft, man, woman, or child, a certain kind of person tended to be the most vulnerable to suspicion. These were often the individuals who pushed against social barriers or made those around them feel uncomfortable. For example, women who publicly fought with their husbands or their neighbors, were widowed and living alone, were independently employed as a midwife or healer, or had done something scandalous, were particularly susceptible to witchcraft accusations. Though estimates vary, approximately 90,000 individuals were prosecuted for witchcraft-related crimes, and about 45,000 people were executed during this period. About 75% of those targeted were women. Now, it's important to understand that those accused of being a witch were innocent people. While some may have practiced folk magic, there is no evidence to suggest these individuals were actually trying to sell their soul to the devil and wage war against Christian society. These people were instead convenient scapegoats for any number of problems, such as the death of a child, a sudden decline in health, or a destructive turn in the weather. Over time, legal witch trials came to an end, but stories lingered on. A stereotype of a witch formed based on the stories, legends, and allegations that circulated throughout Europe during the witch trials period. 
Of course, today we are very familiar with what we might call the stereotypical witch. This is a woman, usually, though not always, older and ugly, who wears a pointed hat, flies through the air on a broomstick, lures children into her candy-covered house so she may eat them, and cooks over a bubbling cauldron. This is the figure that has stayed with us in popular culture, a shadow of the stories that once haunted the minds of thousands. Before Europeans hunted witches, seeing these evildoers as the source of their trouble and suffering, suspicion was often directed toward religious minorities such as Jews. Jews have faced persecution since the very inception of this religion. For example, before Christ, the Hebrews, the early Jewish people, were sometimes persecuted because they refused to adopt the religion of the local ruler. However, anti-Jewish sentiment intensified as Christianity became a solidified religion. The origins of this aggression are complex. For example, this was in part grounded in rhetoric that viewed Jews as collectively at fault for the death of Jesus. This view was based in a section of the New Testament, which states that the crucifixion of, Ju of Jesus was agreed upon by the crowd of Jewish onlookers who said, quote, his blood be on us and on our children, unquote. According to historian William Brustein, quote, thus begins the Christian conception of the collective responsibility of Jews for the death of Jesus, a conception that would gain momentum in the sermons and writings of the fourth century Christian writers, unquote. Again, this is a very complicated subject, one which we do not have the ability to delve into in its entirety. However, ideas about Christian superiority over Jews grew over time, eventually leading to the legal degradation of Jews in the medieval period. So that is not to say Jews were treated badly universally across Christian Europe. There were times and places where Jews were accepted, at least to some degree, into communities and lived peacefully. However, Jews were increasingly seen as subordinates to Christians. Slowly, legal limitations were placed on their freedom. So, for example, in the Roman Empire, the first explicit ban on Jews holding public office was as early as 418. Seven years later, they were also prohibited from serving as lawyers. As time went on, Jews were prohibited from owning Christian slaves or employing Christian servants, from marrying Christians, and were prevented from appearing as witnesses against Christians in court. In 1555, Pope Paul IV issued the papal decree Cum Nimis Absurdum, which, among other restrictions, officially sanctioned the confinement of Jews under his dominion to a particular street or quarter, creating sanctioned Jewish ghettos. Here we can see an illustration of a Jewish ghetto in Venice, Italy. In the places where Jews remained, their professional opportunities became increasingly limited. In certain areas, Jews were not allowed to own land, restricting farming as a profession, and they were also frequently banned from craftsmen and merchant guilds. They were, however, often permitted to engage in certain professions that were seen as less favorable to the ruling classes. They often worked as tax collectors, money lenders, peddlers, and managers of estates. Money lending was eventually condemned by the church as a sin for Christians, and the church began to encourage a negative connotation. As noted by Sarah Lipton in her article, Jews and Money, quote, 
preachers began to tell anecdotes about deceitful Jewish misers who consorted with the devil, villains with distinctively fleshy and bestial features. The aim was to intensify the negative connotations of Jew and thereby create a more negative attitude towards usury so that it would be shunned by Christians, unquote. The tendency to fulfill this profession, among other factors, eventually contributed to a stereotype. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, this included the idea that, quote, Jews did not work hard or produce goods with their own hands. Jews chose to work with money and to trade in goods because of their skills, their greed, and their desire to manipulate and cheat Christians. Jews preferred meaningless study and frivolous entertainment to hard creative work. Jews were insincere and potentially disloyal in that they converted to Christianity to obtain material benefits. Jews were cowards in a fair fight and avoided military service, unquote. With these legal limitations and growing social distrust also came sinister stories about the alleged evil deeds of Jews, who were increasingly seen as distrustful, sinister, and eventually demonic. Illustrations depicting Jews with, depicted Jews with horns and cloven feet, libelous allegations that Jews ritually murdered children, desecrated host wafers, and spread plague circulated across Europe. Let us now consider the overlap between the accusations brought against Jews and witches. As we will see, the same stories that followed European Jews for centuries were often reused in the early modern period to describe the actions of witches. We'll start with accusations of blood libel or the false accusations that Jews murder Christian children. It's important to note stories of cannibalism and murder are often used to vilify fringe or distrusted groups in the past and present day. The Romans made these allegations about early Christians. Fringe Christian groups like the Cathars were accused of these depraved acts by the medieval church. Today, we see these same accusations brought up again in many cases to vilify political leaders. The recurrence of these stories makes sense at least on some level. These are stories used to demonize others, those who are different and whose difference feels threatening. Murder, particularly child murder and cannibalism are some of the worst crimes imaginable. By accusing someone of these crimes, you are stripping them of their humanity, of their right for empathy. It's difficult to date the first accusations that a Jewish person had killed a child for ritual purposes, though historians often point to an incident which allegedly took place in Norwich, England in 1144. According to the story, a young boy's body was found in the woods around Easter. Sources would later claim that some believed Jews had attempted to crucify the child as a way to express their abhorrence for Jesus, though there is no record of a subsequent trial or punishment. Another incident was reported in 1255 when a nine-year-old boy, known as Little Hugh of Lincoln, died. Unlike the previous case, this accusation resulted in the execution of nearly 20 local Jews who were blamed for the tragedy. This would become a famous story and is still referenced by anti-Semitists today. Of course, here we can see the beginning of a pattern. The mysterious, untimely death of a child could be blamed on Jews, providing a scapegoat to the bereaved family and community. 
by the 13th century, the story was expanded to include the idea that Jews were killing Christian children specifically to obtain their blood for ritual purposes. We should note, these accusations were condemned by church and secular authorities for centuries. For example, in 1247, Jewish leaders appealed to Pope Innocent IV after a Christian girl was found dead and Jews were tortured and burned at the stake by enraged locals. The Pope denounced this persecution, a stance that popes in the following centuries would maintain. However, this papal protection would come to an end following a particularly notorious incident in Trent, Italy in 1475. As in previous cases, accusations began following the discovery of a deceased child. In this case, it was the body of a toddler named Simon, discovered in a canal under a Jewish house. Moreover, the body was found in March, close to Easter and Passover, underscoring the belief that ritual sacrifices took place during this season. This led to an unusually lengthy trial and ultimately the torture and execution of nearly all the male Jews in this small community. The fear generated by this case was significant and ultimately ended papal defense of Jews. By the 15th century, stories of blood libel were extended to describe the behavior of the latest heretical threat, witches. I'm sure we're all familiar with the idea that witches eat children. That's a stereotype that has remained with the folkloric witch for centuries. On screen here, we can see an image of the famous children's story Hansel and Gretel. Of course, the witch in this story is attempting to devour two innocent children, luring them to their demise with her candy-covered house. This trope in folklore is based on real stories brought against thousands during the witch trials period. Individuals accused of witchcraft were frequently said to have murdered and consumed children. As was the case with previous Jewish accusations, there's no evidence to suggest these individuals were guilty of this heinous crime. The documents relating to these cases were almost always authored by individuals who believed in the guilt of the accused, and we know many were tortured into confessing to elaborate stories. For example, early witch trials author Johannes Nieders, circa 1437, for Macarius, includes reference to a woman's confession allegedly told to him by a judge who oversaw her trial. After having been tortured, the woman is said to have told him, quote, one of the witch's main activities was killing small children, either in their cradles or right in their parents' beds. This was performed so stealthily that the children seemed to have died a natural death, unquote. She continued saying, quote, then we secretly steal them from their graves and cook them in a cauldron until the whole flesh comes away from the bones and becomes a soup that may easily be drunk. And with the liquid, we fill a flask or skin. Whoever drinks from this, with the addition of a few other rituals, immediately acquires much knowledge and becomes a leader in our sect, unquote. Whether this confession was fabricated by the author or generated under the, the duress of torture, we cannot know. Either way, versions of this disturbing story would be echoed again and again, appearing in influential texts such as the infamous Malleus Maleficarum. Though these tales were more elaborate than those brought against Jews, we can see a similar pattern of behavior at work. The sudden or tragic deaths of children could be explained as the work of demonic forces hiding in plain sight. 
As a result, innocent people would then find themselves accused of the most deplorable acts imaginable. In his excellent work, The European Witch Hunt, Julian Goodair poignantly comments on this pattern of behavior. Quote, people blame a scapegoat because it is better than doing nothing. He goes on to say, scapegoating has a real social function. It helps people make sense of an unfamiliar and threatening situation and gives them a course of action, unquote. There are other notable similarities between the accusations brought against Jews and witches. For example, both were accused of spreading plague and illness. Beginning in the 12th century, stories began to circulate that Jews poisoned wells, purposely spreading harmful diseases. While these allegations would surface from time to time, these rumors escalated dramatically with the emergence of the Black Plague in Europe. Spread primarily by rodents and fleas, this disease was one of the deadliest in human history. It's estimated that 25 million people died in Europe as a result of the plague, approximately 40% of the population. As the plague destroyed community after community, stories claim that Jews and lepers were responsible for the disease, as they had allegedly participated in a widespread conspiracy to poison the wells of Europe. According to historian William Brustein, the contemporary myth claimed that Quote, Jews allegedly carried out their misdeed by administering a concoction of spiders, frogs, lizards, excrement, menstrual blood, Christian hearts, and consecrated hosts through secret tunnels that flowed into the wells of Christian Europe, unquote. It's important to note these rumors were not accepted by all. In fact, Pope Clement VI firmly denounced anti-Jewish violence during the plague. Nevertheless, hundreds of Jewish communities were attacked or destroyed across Europe as a result of these allegations. Thousands of Jews were forcibly converted or burned at the stake. We should note this method of execution was used for individuals believed to have committed a variety of heretical offenses. As we know from popular culture, those convicted of witchcraft were often burned at the stake in Europe. However, it should be noted this punishment was not the only method of execution for witches. Individuals condemned as witches were hanged in England and the English colonies. Unlike 14th century Jews, witches were not typically blamed for full-blown pandemics such as the Black Plague. However, those accused of witchcraft were frequently suspected of spreading disease or bringing illness in specific cases. In fact, outbreaks of unexpected sickness were frequently the spark which ignited a witchcraft accusation. Illness might also bolster an already existing witchcraft suspicion. We see this in numerous examples during the Salem Witch Trials. For example, John Willard, one of the 19 individuals hanged during the Salem Witch Trials, was accused of causing the illness of two members of his wife's family. After having been named by a member of the community as a possible witch, Willard sought the advice of his grandfather-in-law, Bray Wilkins. Having broken a promise to pray with Willard, Wilkins became convinced his grandson-in-law gave him a malevolent look, the evil eye, causing him to suffer from a urinary tract illness. The spread of disease caused by malevolent magic was just one of the calamities believed to be brought on by witches. Other seemingly random acts of misfortune could be attributed 
to the work of a witch as well. For example, unusual weather patterns, particularly those that damage crops or disrupted journeys, could be blamed on witchcraft. In one particularly famous example, King James VI of Scotland came to fear witchcraft was at work when his fleet was struck by a severe storm while he returned home after collecting his new bride, Anne of Denmark. James would eventually become convinced this was the work of witches from North Berth, leading to the trial, torture, and execution of at least 70 people, though some estimate this number may be closer to 200. It should perhaps come as no surprise that before the witch trials period, Jews were also accused of causing natural disasters, including earthquakes, rainstorms, and hailstorms. For example, according to 16th century author Johann Jacob Schul, King Charles V blamed a failed attack on the coast of Algiers on the work of a Jewish magician, who he claimed had raised the storm that rerouted his ship. Another fascinating connection are the stories of flying, and particularly the vehicle used to achieve flight. We are likely all familiar with the trope that witches fly on broomsticks. However, during the early modern period, there was no consensus as to if or how witches flew. Some claimed witches could not fly, and perhaps those who confessed to this act were tricked into thinking they flew in their dreams. Others claimed witches flew supported by nothing at all. Details of these stories depended on where you were. Some said witches flew on pitchforks. Others said they flew on sticks. In fact, that's the story we see brought up during the Salem Witch Trials. And finally, some said they flew on goats. This particular reference to witches astride a goat provides yet another link between previous story stories used to disparage Jews. It was common to associate Jews and goats in the medieval period. Though goats had once been seen as a symbol of fertility, they eventually became associated with the devil by Christians. And thus, the connection drawn between Jews and goats in early modern art was another visual reminder of Jews' presumed connection to the devil. As we see here, both witches and Jews were depicted in contemporary illustrations writing backwards on goats. Perhaps one of the most fascinating connections is the witch's hat. We are frequently asked about the origins of the stereotypical witch here at our museum. Why do witches fly on broomsticks? Why do they cook over a cauldron? Why do they have green skin? Some of these traits have relatively clear roots, as we just noted when discussing the witch's flight, for example. However, a characteristic that we have struggled to understand for many years now is the witch's hat. Unlike the cauldron or the black cat, there's rarely mention of the origin of this archetype in witchcraft historiography. The only mention we have previously come across was the inclusion of an image in Julian Goodair's book, The European Witch Hunt, captioned a Sicilian witch. The British Museum's catalog states that this illustration depicts a witch wearing a conical penitent, a cone-shaped hat worn as a sign of penance, decorated with the devil and carrying a long taper. With this information in mind, we wondered if the witch's distinct pointed hat may have originated from a form of penance used for heretics during the Inquisition. Once we began delving into this research, it became apparent that the origins of the witch's hat could potentially be entwined with the history of European anti-Semitism. 
Beginning in the 11th century, a pointed hat was increasingly used to identify a Jewish figure in medieval art. In her work, Dark Mirror, The Medieval Origins of Anti-Jewish Iconography, historian Sarah Lipton argues this was not initially a reflection of a contemporary style, but Jews would eventually be required to wear various distinguishing items of clothing across Europe, including a pointed hat. In 1215, Pope Innocent III decreed during the, first, the Fourth Lateran Council that Jews and Muslims would be required to wear identifying markers or items of clothing at all times. As the Pope did not specify what markings would be used, they varied across Europe, with the size, color, and shape of the badge or item of clothing differing depending on the individual country. For example, in 1275, England adopted the practice, requiring Jews over the age of seven to wear a piece of yellow cloth six fingers long and three wide over the chest of their outermost garment. These badges were intended to be shaped like the Ten Commandment tablets. In French territories, the badge was called a rota and was the shape of a circle in red or yellow fabric. In Spain and Italian territories, badges were also usually a yellow circle, though the enforcement of this badge was sporadic. As previously stated, a pointed hat known as the Jewish hat, Judenhut, or Pilius Cornutus was a visual identifier of a Jewish person by the medieval period. Historian Gary Jensen notes, quote, in the 14th century in German and French mystery plays, which were tableau depicting biblical scenes with accompanying Christian chants, Jews were clothed in Jewish garb with a Jew badge and peaked hat reinforcing the connection between Jews, lust, and Satan for an ever-growing audience. Such plays heightened anti-Jewish sentiment and solidified stereotypes." Unquote. Beyond this visual reference, some Jews were required to wear this pointed hat as the clothing item distinguishing them from the Christian population in certain areas of Europe. As observed by historian Sarah Lipton, by 1267, two church councils required Jews to wear pointed hats, and as time went on, pointed hats became signs of Jewishness. We can see several images of these hats here. Some were smaller, with a sharp point and a sort of knob at the top. Others were taller and thinner, more closely resembling the witch hat of today. And here we see another image of this elongated Jewish hat drawn by Spanish artist Francisco Goya in the early 19th century. As we saw in the first illustration, heretics charged with practicing magic in Sicily were also required to wear this pointed hat in public as a form of penance. We can see another image here showing the execution of Protestants and Jews accused by the Inquisition of practicing heresy and witchcraft and again, we can see several pointed hats denoting Jews. Historian Brian Levesque notes that by 1421, Hungarian offenders charged with sorcery were required to publicly wear the Jews' hat. Now, logic follows. There's a connection between the pointed hat worn by Jews, the cone hat worn by heretics, and the notion of the devil in European popular culture. We can therefore make the educated guess that the witch's hat so commonly associated with this figure today is likely derived from, or at least strongly influenced by, the pointed hat required to be worn by Jews in the medieval period.
Other similar characteristics can be found in artistic depictions of witches and Jews. For example, in the late 13th century, male Jews began to be depicted with hooked noses, a sign which, according to historian Sarah Lipton, denoted sin and moral turpitude. This would eventually become a dominant element of the derogatory Jewish stereotype. As the medieval period wore on, Jews were increasingly described in an unattractive light. They were said to be malodorous, bearing a distinct smell that could only dissipate after they converted and were depicted with grotesque features such as large hooked noses and warts. Typically, early modern witches were depicted in one of two ways. They were either young, beautiful seductresses or old, haggard monsters. The latter depiction has, of course, remained with the stereotypical witch today. If we look at visuals surrounding Halloween, we often see a witch depicted as an ugly woman with a black pointed hat, a hooked nose, and a large hideous wart. It's interesting to compare some of the derogatory characteristics included in artistic renderings of Jews and witches. Of course, these characteristics were not necessarily meant to intentionally link the witch and Jew. They were instead meant to exaggerate the otherness of these individuals, providing visual reminders of their allegedly depraved, undesirable nature. Remnants of this medieval stereotype have remained fixed to the depictions of both Jews and witches for centuries. Here we can see two images just 40 years apart, illustrating how these stereotypical features have, to a certain degree, remained. Due to a combination of factors, including the rise of the Age of Enlightenment and advancements made during the Scientific Revolution, witch hunts came to an end in the 18th century. The last legal witch execution is thought to have taken place in the Swiss canton of Glarus in 1782. The restoration of Jewish citizenship, civil, and political rights began during the same period. This process would continue throughout the 19th century and though Jews were now granted legal civil equality, anti-Semitism and social discrimination remained ever looming throughout Europe. While it's fascinating to compare the similarities between the accusations spread about both Jews and witches centuries ago, these stories have important lessons for us in the modern day. These were libelous tales frequently spread during times of escalated fear, which would have deadly consequences for thousands of innocent people targeted as part of a fictional demonic conspiracy. Unfortunately, the most destructive episode of European anti-Semitism would of course take place in the 1930s and 40s, yet again during a time of increased tension and misfortune. Though the propaganda used by the Nazis now included new elements, many of the allegations and stories used to degrade Jews during the medieval period resurfaced, once again used to dehumanize and scapegoat. This time, the consequences would be nearly unimaginable, resulting in the mass murder of six million Jews. Anti-Semitism remains a very real and serious problem to this day. In fact, the Anti-Defamation League reported in March of this year that anti-Semitic incidents increased by 36% in 2022, the largest increase since the ADL began tracking such events in 1979. Assaults were up by 26%, harassment incidents by 29%, and acts of vandalism by 52%.
Speaking to the PBS NewsHour earlier this year, Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and director of the ADL, said, quote, not only was 22 the highest number that we have ever seen, and we have done this for almost 45 years, this was the third time in the past four years that we broke a new record, unquote. Musing about the reasons behind the steady increase, Greenblatt went on to say, quote, anti-Semitism has been normalized and almost weaponized in the political conversation and public debates. It's now just common course to use anti-Semitic tropes about great replacement theory, about who controls Congress or who controls Wall Street, who is responsible for COVID, and on and on. In a world in which conspiracy theories are the new coin of the realm, anti-Semitism, the oldest conspiracy theory, has new life, unquote. 